0: And I want to begin by asking you uh, a couple questions. First, why do you come to church? Why, in the first place, why would you get up this morning and instead of, you know, sleeping in, instead of saying, "Oh, well, my lawn needs to be mowed, uh, I'm a little overdue there, instead of saying, oh, it's a nice morning to, you know, get the poles and, and go fishing, hit the lake, or why don't we just go up to the cabin and, and skip church this Sunday, why do people go to church at all? Is it just tradition? Uh, is it just something that, that we do? Uh, is it something that our parents maybe just drag us to? Uh, for me, growing up, uh, I grew up going to a Roman Catholic church. I was an altar boy uh, when I was young. We actually lived like there was one house between us and the church. So uh, for me, it was kind of a no-brainer. I could just walk to church, and I, I, you know, I had to go. Uh, when I went to junior high, we moved to a new town, my mom got remarried, I went to a different church and I, I went through confirmation and you know it was the thing that you were supposed to do. And I remember many Sunday mornings, many battles with my mom, her trying to get me up out of bed and, and drag me to church. And I just was like, ah, this is the last thing I wanna do. I, I did my dues, I did confirmation, all of that. Well, then I went to college and I was finally free no church for me i was not going to do it and i didn't i don't think i went to church one sunday the entire freshman year of college and for me that was just you know why would i want to spend my time doing that but then something happened in my life Uh, in the midst of living a crazy freshman year you can imagine at lacrosse I came home one night after partying hard, and things in my life were kind of falling apart, and a guy who lived in my dorm named Tom sat me down, and he said, how's your relationship with the Lord? And I was like, well, uh, kind of non-existent. I would have said that I believed God existed. But as Tom proceeded to share the gospel with me, and the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, I knew that my life needed to change and at that point church wasn't really a a part of the equation. I didn't think going to church was important but I woke up Sunday morning still hung over from the night before and went to church with Tom and I saw a group of people loving each other and worshiping God and living out what they actually believed and what they said they were doing and they they were living on on mission together, they weren't just a bunch of consumers who were going and saying, well, what can I get out of this? What's in it for me? Because that was definitely my attitude. And I think I wanted to share that part of my story because it's probably a story that a lot of you can relate to at some point in your growing up, especially if you grew up in Wisconsin, um, a lot of just church culture, kind of going to church, just the thing that we're supposed to do. I think many of us struggle to believe that there is a relationship between our identity in Christ and our involvement in a local church, and we swim against a cultural current that promotes hyper-individualism. It says, just look out for number one and don't waste your time laying down your life for other people. Some of us may have experienced a church culture that is equally individualistic, treating people like consumers, promising new programs, new methods, new techniques that will satisfy our continual restlessness and our continual discontentment. So my prayer for us during this series is that we would love Christ and love his church more, and specifically these next two Sundays, that we would know who God has called us to be as his people, as the church, and that we would live in light of our true identity. Well, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that Presbyterians, we value our creeds and our confessions. Uh, It's not because we believe that they, they have more authority or insight than Scripture, but we believe that God has wisely and graciously led people throughout church history to explain the heart of the Christian message to those in their generation. And those things have passed down from their generation still to our generation, just as we recited the Nicene Creed earlier. In the early church, this came through creeds and confessions that were hammered out. Uh, during church councils, there were hundreds of people in attendance at these councils. Some of them lasted months long, and uh, there was many things that were, uh, many fruit that was produced through those things. So we recited the Nicene Creed, and I want us to focus in on one of the lines uh, from the Nicene Creed. We're going to be looking at that this morning. It's near the bottom. It says, We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We call these the attributes of the church, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, those four things. We're going to be looking at those specifically this morning as we look at the first two verses in Ephesians 1, and we're going to ask a couple questions. What do an ancient letter, this letter of, to the Ephesians written by Paul, and an ancient creed, the Nicene Creed, what do they have to communicate to us today about Christ and his church? And then the other question is, how can Paul's letter to the Ephesians encourage today's church to walk in and fulfill the mission that God has called us to do? So let's go together to God's word. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. It's printed there in your worship guide. You can follow along as we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning to your word, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, God, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things out of your word, Uh, that we would see the beauty of who you are, beauty of christ the beauty of Christ's church and that we would see how our lives here today in 2017 how our lives fit in with your great plan for your people for your church it's in christ's name that we pray amen i'm not going to spend a ton of time uh we're we're going to be preaching through the book of ephesians at livingstone when we start in october I'm not going to spend a lot of time this morning going over background information of Ephesians. Um, if you're interested, that's something you can look up. It's, it's good stuff if you're into that kind of thing. Um, but Ephesians was most likely a circular letter. It was a letter that was written to be passed around to many different churches and the, kind of argue that the word in Ephesus is actually not in some of the earliest manuscripts. And it's also Paul's least personal letter, um, so there's, there's an argument, I think a pretty sound argument, that this was a circular letter uh, that was passed to Ephesus and surrounding cities. And um, I think that is says a lot for us uh, here today, that it wasn't just one message written to one people in, in one specific time and location, but it's really a, a message that is for the whole church. It has a lot to say to us today. I love how Sinclair Ferguson sums it up in his commentary on Ephesians. Um, he's kind of explaining that what I was just saying, that Ephesians has a lot of these timeless truths and they're things that speak to us today. So, so listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says about Ephesians. He says, The Ephesian Christians were marginalized in a pluralistic culture, tolerant of many things, but not of the Christian gospel or the church which proclaimed it. They needed to know that they were secure. Paul teaches them that they are anchored in the eternal purposes of God. They lived under the threat of dark and sinister powers. They needed to know that Christ had conquered all his and their enemies. They were surrounded by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They needed to know that God had raised them out of that spiritual death. They were confronted on a daily basis with Gentile paganism. They needed to know that Christ had brought them into the family of God. They lived under the shadow of a false temple and a false idol. They needed to know that they were the true temple of God. They lived in an ungodly society. They needed to know how the gospel would transform their lives. They saw life in marriage family, and business corrupted by self-interest. They needed to know how grace could transform all relationships. They were under attack from the forces of darkness. They needed to know how they could remain standing in battle. Now, whether it's the underground church in China that is marginalized or persecuted, or whether it's the church in America that is increasingly marginalized in a culture that is not tolerant of the Christian gospel, the message of Ephesians still speaks to us today. I think it's appropriate that we start then with the first of these four attributes from the Nicene Creed. It's that the church is one. Unity is a major theme throughout the book of Ephesians. It's seen in chapter two, where it talks about us having peace with God and peace with one another because of the grace of God and what he has done for us in Christ. In chapter 4, which we're actually going to be looking at next week, Paul tells them to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So where do we see unity here in Ephesians 1, 1 and 2? This idea that the church is one. Well, I think we see it, maybe not explicitly, but it's there in verse 2 where it says grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord jesus christ god's grace is the only reason that we're here the only reason that any of us are a part of this church or a part of any church that we are a part of the body of christ and god's peace the peace that we have with him and that we have with others because of christ these two things grace and peace these are what, what we are, need every day to stand strong in the midst of the grind and in the midst of the grind of life and the battle that we live in this fallen world. I've been uh, coaching my son Cademan's Little League team. We actually just finished our tournament yesterday and uh, had two David versus Goliath kind of games and we just barely lost both of them. But um, something that I talked with the boys all season long is... We're going to win as a team, and we're going to lose as a team. Everybody needs to do their part. Everybody needs—you need to play your position. Uh, you need to know where you're going with the ball. You need to be heads up. Uh, it's important that that we work together. So, team unity in baseball is a huge thing, and we see it really at every level of sports, all the way up to the pros. Uh, if you if you follow pro sports, you'll hear pro athletes talk about the locker room. Right? Uh, they'll talk about whether there's a a healthy locker room or there's a divided locker room. and This idea of, of how well the team is playing on the field is very much directly related to how things are in the locker room, whether there's a good culture in the locker room, whether people get along with each other and respect each other, whether they respect the coach, and you know, if you followed maybe your favorite team and, and things kind of start to deteriorate in the locker room, you kind of know what's coming, right? You know the coach is going to get the ax. You know things are going to start to fall apart on the field. And it's really inevitable. It happens every single time. And so this idea of unity is, is huge. Um, if you've played sports yourself, you've seen that. You know how important uh, chemistry is on a team. It's, it's the same in the workplace. It's the same in our families. Uh, it's the same obviously here in the church how is how are things working together what kind of culture do we have here do we have a do we have a divisive culture do we have a culture where where people are are backbiting and taking sides and and people are trying to get on good sides with the coach and and it's causing division well do you know how jesus prayed do you know what he prayed for us before he went to the cross In John chapter 17, just before Jesus was betrayed, this was his prayer to his father. He said, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us sitting here today. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for the unity here in our church. Think about that. Probably one of the last things he prayed before he went to the cross He's praying for the unity in this room. So, for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Listen to this. So that, there's a reason for our unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Okay, and we kind of back to the Nicene Creed here, what I was talking about, the Trinity, you know, who is Jesus? Is is he fully God? Is he fully man? All these debates that were going on. Right here, Jesus is talking about his unity, his oneness with the Father and our oneness with him and with each other. Those things are very tightly tied together. So it's not... We don't fight for things like the deity of Christ just because we like to argue about theological points. That Jesus is fully God and that he is one with the Father is absolutely essential to who we are as Christians sitting here today. So that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Again, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. The unity of the church, brothers and sisters, is paramount to Christ's mission being accomplished in the world, that people would believe in and know Christ and be reconciled to God and one another through him. That's what Jesus prayed for, and that's what he wants in his church here even today. You might look around the landscape of our culture. Uh, You might look at divisions among churches and denominations and you might wonder if we're just failing if we're if we're doing something fundamentally wrong if we're just not getting this thing right you wonder if all this talk of unity is just some pie in the sky dream by pastors who say i'm just tired of dealing with division and i'm just going to talk about unity so that we can just not have to deal with church conflict well trust me it's easy to get discouraged It's easy to see those things. It's easy to see relationships broken, marriages broken up, churches split up. It's easy to be discouraged when we look around at all those other areas of life, families, marriages, schools, workplaces, politics, sports teams. And then we're left to ask, is there any hope for unity in in the church? Is there any hope for unity here in our church? Is there any hope for unity of the church in, in this city, in this state? in this nation, around the world. And then what can we do about it? Is there, any, is there any hope? Is there anything we can do about it? I think there's two things that we can do. The first thing is that we can pray for unity. Jesus prayed for it, and I think we would do well to learn from him, from that model. One practical step, I think we can pray for the unity of the churches in our city. Uh, when we've been gathering together in Oshkosh to pray, for our church, one of the things we've just trying to be consistently praying about is unity of the churches in our city. We're not we're not going and you know Emmaus Road didn't come to Appleton and just say oh there's no good churches in Appleton. We're just going to start a finally start a good church. No, we're going to we're going to get to know other churches. We're going to partner with other churches. We're going to do things together, and that's something that we're praying for in Oshkosh as well. Like another thing that we can do is we can pursue peace with other people in the church. Um, reconciliation is a, is a big theme here in Ephesians. If you sin against someone, go to them and ask for their forgiveness. If you've been sinned against, forgive that person. Be reconciled to them. I think another thing is to seek to know those who are not like us. You know, it's easy just to, to be around people who are like you, uh, to not get out of your comfort zone. But I think one thing that we can do to promote unity is to to seek to have fellowship with those who who are not like us, and maybe don't even agree on every little area of doctrine with us. The the church is not a social club. Uh, We don't just come here to hang out with people who are like us and who share all of our same interests. Uh, It really should require the grace and the peace of God for all of us to be here together, and to love each other, and to serve each other from all of our different backgrounds. We come from, from different backgrounds, different places. We're not probably just naturally the group of people who would, would hang out with each other. It should require a supernatural work of God for us to do what we do. And people from the outside, they should look in, they should people should walk through our doors and say, wow, I can't believe how well these people get along with each other. Uh, The truth of the gospel should really be evident. It should be proclaimed in the way that we love each other and the way that we serve each other. And then the third thing is to see the bigger picture, to see God's plan for his church, and to trust that he is accomplishing his purposes throughout the world uh, and here in Appleton, uh, despite what we may see sometimes as a lack of unity in the church. Well, we come now to the second attribute of the church that we're looking at, and that's Holy. Uh, we see this in our text, in our second line, where Paul addresses his audience here. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. Now, the word here that is translated saints, it literally means holy ones. Uh, it's the same root word that's used many times throughout the book of Ephesians. Paul uses it eight other times to refer to the word saints. Uh, he tells them a couple times to be holy. Uh, there's a mention, mention of the Holy Spirit The holy temple and the holy apostles. So, this idea of holiness is a theme that really comes out in the book of Ephesians. And what does it mean to be holy? Well, it just all it means is to be set apart for God, to be separate. I think this need, as we're looking here these two weeks, this needs to be understood in terms of both identity and calling who we are, God's holy people, and what we are called to do to be holy. In terms of identity, the people of God have always been called to be set apart to him. In the Old Testament, God called the people of Israel a holy nation. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter picks up on that language and he's writing to Christians. He calls them a holy priesthood and a holy nation. That's who God made us to be as his people, that we are to be holy and set apart to him. If you look on the front of your worship guide... Um, I love the quote that is here from Sinclair Ferguson. He says, A person becomes a saint not by years of hard effort leading to promotion among the spiritual elite when the Christian life ends, but by the resurrection and transformation with which it begins. Think about that for a minute. You don't earn sainthood by this long life that's, You know, supposedly without sin. You become a saint in God's sight in a moment when God saves you and when you're born again and when you're made righteous and justified in His sight. This is really the heart of the gospel message. God takes those of us who are dead in our sins, those who were not a people, and He makes them alive in Christ and He makes them His people. And that's what Paul is reminding the Ephesians of here, that they are saints. They are holy ones because, if you see the end of that sentence, they are in Christ. This idea of identity and and union with Christ is a huge theme in Paul. Throughout Ephesians, you're going to see this over and over. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We are holy ones in Christ, the Holy One. If you think about Some of the things Jesus is, is some of the names Jesus is called. Uh, In Mark chapter 1, very beginning of Mark's gospel, there's a demon-possessed man that says to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So right off the bat, Jesus is identified as the Holy One of God. And then in John 6, many of Jesus' disciples, they turn away. They no longer walk with him. And Jesus turns to the 12. He says, do you want to go away as well? Peter responds, I love this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter's confession of who Jesus is, he calls him the Holy One of God. So the church, we here today, we are holy not because of the collective merit of all the individuals who are part of it, but the church is holy because Christ is holy and he has purchased a people for himself. We belong to him. We belong to the Holy One. And the question that we are faced with, all of us throughout our lives, just as the disciples, as as Jesus put it to the disciples, do you want to go away as well? Believe me, it can, be, it, it can be very discouraging to pe- see people walk away from the church, to see people walk away from their faith, to turn their backs on God, to no longer walk with Jesus. But I always find myself going back to this, back to Peter's response to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Maybe you're here today and this question is really eating at you. You know, maybe you were like me. You grew up in the church. Um, Your parents or your friends dragged you to church. Maybe you're kind of at that place where you're like, what is this all about anyways? Why am I here? Maybe you're contemplating throwing in the towel. Maybe it's just the weight of your own sin. Uh, Maybe you feel like, how can I go? Okay, the pastor's telling me I need to be holy, but... You know, I'm in all this sin. How can I go be among these people who who are claiming to be holy? Or maybe it's a frustration of what you see, the inconsistency of the lives of other people. Maybe you see hypocrisy and, and people claiming to be holy and, and they're not living holy lives. You know, The holiness that God calls us to and I think the actual holiness that we often live in our lives, those things rarely match up. And that's really... Again, this points us to the gospel, but it's, it's the reality of the experience of the church throughout church history. Um, go read an a, a introductory church history book and, and be prepared to be utterly disappointed. <laughs> be prepared to be utterly discouraged at the people <laughs> because the people will fail. I'm going to fail. You. Dan's going to fail you. I'm going to fail the people at Livingstone. But it's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about His church. It's about Him being the Holy One and us walking with Him and trusting Him. Yes, we're called to live holy lives. And yes, we're going to fail. But that's why we keep coming here every Sunday and rehearsing the gospel and hearing God's word pre- preached and being reminded. Of who we are called to be. To whom shall we go? Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. It's how it was when he walked the earth, and it's still that way today. So don't come to church out of duty. All of your church attendance and all of your good deeds, they're never going to stack up, they're never going to measure up to what God requires. They're not going to make you a saint. Come to church out of delight. Because God has declared that despite who you were and all of your sin and all of your unworthiness, that you are now a saint in Christ. Come to church because Jesus is the Holy One of God and he alone has the words of eternal life. Be involved in the life of the church because that is what God has designed for your good and for your growth in him. Well, the third attribute that we come to is... Catholic. One holy Catholic Church. I know there's a lot of confusion over this word. I know, especially around here, uh, we hear this word. I'll set your hearts at ease. Uh, Catholic here simply means universal, okay? Uh, We distinguish between big C, Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, and little c, Catholic, which just means universal, and this little c, is, this is what the Nicene Creed is speaking of. As Protestants, we don't, we don't need to be afraid of this word. Uh, Catholic, it's not a dirty word. Uh, we should heartily confess that we believe one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I would encourage you, um, after you get done reading your church history book, uh, go familiarize yourself with some of the historic creeds and some of the reformed confessions and catechisms. Uh, If you want recommendations on that, I can give you some of those. But there is just, there is a wealth of understanding, a wealth of teaching, a wealth of encouragement to be found in these documents. And one example uh, that I love is the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a question and answer format. One of the questions, number 54 in the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? The answer is that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself, by his spirit and word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am, for, am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Now, you need to read that about four or five times to catch everything that's in there. It's so rich. And really, all this is is just a distillation of truths from Scripture. These are all things that are taken right out of Scripture. A lot of them are actually taken right out of Ephesians. Jesus died for his people. He died to gather a people to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and language. That's what it means, Catholic, universal, There is no American church. There is no Chinese church. There is no Brazilian church, and on and on. Name the country, name the people group. There is the Catholic or universal church. And then there are the churches in those places. But don't confuse those places with the church. There is one church, one body of Christ, made up of all the redeemed people from all over, from among all the peoples of the world. And this truth is, this is the, the Catholic is tied very closely to that first attribute that we talked about, that the church is one, and I think we've spent significant time talking about that. So we'll move on to the last one. The fourth attribute is apostolic. Like Catholic, uh, this apostolic can kind of be a loaded word for some people, but let's, before we worry about all the different things, let's go back to Ephesians and see what it means here in the context of Scripture. Paul opens his letter by identifying himself. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So the generic meaning of the word apostle in the New Testament, it just means a messenger, someone who is sent. But there's a, a more special meaning, which is what Paul is using here, and it's related to one of authority. Paul is appealing to his unique office as apostle, as one who is called by the will of God. He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning that his authority comes from Christ and that he himself belongs to Christ. This apostolic authority that Paul is claiming here, I think it has two important, two important functions. <laughs> Whew, it's hot. The first one, the first function is that it's foundational to the establishment of the church. Paul makes this clear in chapter 2 when he is addressing a Gentile audience. That's those who are not Jewish by birth, who would not have been part of the people of God. He reminds them of how they were at one time separated from Christ, but now have been brought near by the blood of Christ and how Christ has reconciled them to God. This is what he says to to the Gentiles. So Paul's reminder here of their new identity in Christ emphasizes that the new people of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The second function of apostolic authority is to confirm that the truth of the gospel message. Paul makes this argument in 1 Corinthians 15 where he reminds the church in Corinth of the message that he preached to them, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then that he appeared to the apostles, and then that he appeared to Paul. So the apostles... To be an apostle in the New Testament, to have that type of authority, to be part of the foundation of the church, it meant that you had seen the risen Christ, that you had witnessed him, and that you confirmed that message by being an eyewitness of Christ. And then they went out and they preached the gospel, and Christ built his church through that apostolic authority and through that message that they went out and preached. And that message has been, has been written down, it's been preserved for us, and we can hold it in our hands and we can read it every day. It's in the scriptures for us. So the question for us this morning is, can we be one holy Catholic and apostolic church that lives out our true identity, that lives out the calling that God has called us to? If you're feeling discouraged about those things, if you're feeling discouraged about where the church is at, if you need a reminder of the glory of of Christ's church and its its place in God's plan, I would encourage you this week, just spend some time reading through the book of Ephesians, uh, seeing God's love for his church, seeing God's cosmic plan to redeem people, and seeing how he uses his church in that. And I would also encourage you just to pray and to ask God to give you a heart for his church. I want to end uh, here with a quote from, from a commentary uh, that kind of speaks to this, uh, this commentary named Lincoln. He says, When Christians become discouraged, feel weak and insignificant, succumb to an individualistic piety, or lose their sense of identity and purpose, Ephesians can provide the necessary reminder of the important part they have to play in God's cosmic plan. Of the fact that the quality of their life together in the church has everything to do with the church's carrying out its task in the world and of the power that has been made available in Christ to move them on toward the fulfillment of such a calling. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us this morning to trust the Lord in that calling. To trust him and be secure in your identity as both an individual Christian and as a part of the body of Christ, that we would trust him, that we would go out and continue to proclaim this message to the world around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder this morning that you love your church, God, that you have called us to be a part of something glorious you have called us to be a part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, that we are to display your glory to the world around us, that we are to to go out and proclaim the message of who Christ is, of how he has come to call lost sinners to repentance and to faith in Christ. May our worship, uh, as we continue here, may we continue to be reminded of that great calling and of who we are in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.